0: Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit
1: this week, recovering from the plague that has descended upon my household. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How you feeling?
1: Um like death.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. But I'm here. Um so is that really recovery, or are we just making it through our time no, of sickness? No, it's not
1: recovery. I just kind of yeah. assume like at some point I'll be
0: recovering. Sure. Once the fun goes away,
1: my nose hurts. I feel like uh, I look like Rudolph, so it's fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm Cameron Lalana, and I am now a boy with a commute. So if you have any audiobook recommendations, please send them my way. Uh, otherwise, I will just go down the line of trashy sci-fi I currently have in my Audible all the way down to hell. So it's really uh, a service to, to to prevent me from going to the worst possible form of literature.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. sorry to our sci-fi fans this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two this fine morning we continue our journey through Tolstoy's war and peace we are doing part two of book one about the next hundred or so pages uh pretty good read pretty good read
0: pretty good read if you are really into the intricate details of military tactics yep it's a military boys part I'll give you that much (laughs) We've had peace. Now it's time for war. Now it's time for war. Now it's time for war. Uh, This series is only possible because of the support of our generous listeners who chip in a little bit every month over at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. As a thank you to all of them, we're going to be hosting a monthly Patreon only reading group to discuss more of the important passages we didn't get to cover in our episode. If you want to get the most out of this series and our podcast, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. Speaking of exciting things that we're doing now,
1: we're on TikTok, finally. You can find us at Tipsy Tolstoy. I'm managing it, running it. It's uh, kind of a personal hell of my own creation. So uh, <laughs> stop by, see see what's going on.
0: <laughs> it's been good. It, it convinced me to download TikTok, create an account, mm-hmm. follow Tipsy Tolstoy, only Tipsy Tolstoy.
1: Only Tipsy Tolstoy, yep.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it started to give me a lot of content on the For You page, and I, I got scared that it was... Yep. Whatever yep. it was doing. So I just followed us and then I liked our right. videos and watched them and enjoyed them because Matt works hard on them. And then I laugh, but maybe I'll be enticed on. I hope not, but maybe.
1: I work somewhat hard on them.
0: <laughs> there we go. That's that's the resounding check mark of quality you'll get from Tipsy Tolstoy. That's content.
1: right. Follow <laughs> us. So we work a little hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, before we get into the reading today, Matt, I got to ask you um, I know it's like 10 a.m. your time. Yep. But what are you drinking this morning?
1: So, I joked about it uh, last episode that I was going to uh, ferment my own kumis. Sure. Because in honor of Tolstoy and his time in Central Asia when he was really into drinking, I don't know, like a million cups per day of kumis, it was allegedly uh, for his health and all these other things. I think he just liked it. I do not have kumis. I have a uh, store-bought Trader Joe's kefir, which is just as good. Yes, it is <laughs> strawberry flavored, but I, I got to tell you, it's 10 in the morning. Let me have my drink. <laughs> it's not an alcoholic it tastes like drinking a smoothie it's great
0: <laughs> do you think Tolstoy would approve of strawberry flavored kumis
1: oh absolutely not you know that he's a kumis <laughs> yeah. traditionalist yeah he's definitely fermenting it himself or <laughs> r- rather probably serfs are fermenting it for him
0: sure yeah that's the most likely possibility
1: that's yeah, a Tolstoyan way <laughs> wh- what are you drinking over there
0: um, well, as it is currently 8.15 in the morning, I am drinking, well, I'm joined by our good friend, last name Joe, first name Kappa. All right. So, it's getting ready. Get ready and energized for the day.
1: That's right. That's good. That's probably better than... Mm, I don't...
0: Mm. I, I think kefir might actually have more health benefits than if it, it's oh, fermented. Oh, it definitely does. I just mean better than alcohol. Oh, yeah, that is in general true. <laughs> Actually, most drinks. I just
1: assume if you're drinking alcohol at at 8:15 a.m. and then going yeah. to work later, it's probably not for the best. <laughs>
0: uh, either that means your life's not going super well or you're very high functioning. Yeah, which hey, mm-hmm. good for you. <laughs> well, I don't know if we can endorse that one. But, well, Pepsi Tolstoy, we maybe don't- good for you. <laughs> we don't officially endorse drinking before you go to work.
1: No. Not officially. (laughs) Only unofficially.
0: (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so part two of War and Peace. Like we said earlier, we've had enough peace. Time for war. I am quite frankly sick and
1: tired of peace.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as are many of the characters in this book. And now they're having a great time. Yeah. Well, some of them. But we'll get into that. Okay, so now we are in, we're in Austria. We're joining uh, General Kutuzov's army. As you recall, General Kutuzov is the uh, leader of the forces who are being sent to fight the French. Um, He's joining Austrian forces. So we are beginning this section with a a long march of uh, Imperial Russian troops. It's been 700 miles. They're ragged. Um, But as soon as they get there, their officers get the order that General Kutuzov is coming to inspect the troops. So, you know, make sure that they're ready from their march. And the officers are like, wait, do you want them as they are from the march? Or do you want them in march, like marching uniforms? And they decide, well, you know, it's General Kutuzov. We'll put them in marching uniforms. They throw them into their nicest blues. Everyone's after. They're tired. They they've just literally they've been walking for seven hundred miles, and, and now they would also
1: it, walk seven hundred more. Yeah, <laughs> they would. They don't have to, but they would.
0: Yes, exactly. To be the man who walks beside you, something something at your door. Da 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 da. so (laughs) they're tired they don't even have boots anymore some of them because again they've walked so far and so they they get to repairing and they get up all in their nicest blues and then an adjunct from Kutuzov comes and says "All right, they're still in their uniforms they had in their march right because General Kutuzov is coming here at the Austrian forces and they want us to march and we don't want to so we want to make sure our troops look really bad and the regimental commander says oh yeah definitely Um, no doubt we will have them I mean, they're already in marching uniforms, totally fine. They look really pathetic, which leads <laughs> to a <laughs> sudden orders to look shittier um, for all of them. They're taking off their nice clothes and they're throwing on their their great coats they've been marching in. It's a it's a comedic scene. It's funny. And um, so after all that, Kutuzov mm-hmm. arrives and Kutuzov is trailed by, of course, Austrian generals. But also I should note our, our good friend and an adjunct to Kutuzov. Uh, Prince Andrei Balkansky. Um, I'm just going to note two other people with Balkansky, two staff officers. Uh, One is named uh, Prince Davitsky and the other is named Zhirkov. Zhirkov is a bit of a jokester and is following behind another staff officer mimicking him in all his motions and eventually runs into Kutuzov when he stops during a a conversation when he's inspecting the troops. Also inspecting the troops, he happens to find um, our good friend, formerly Officer Dolokhov, who um, has suffered actually more material consequences of the bear incident as you may recall uh <laughs> the great bear incident the great bear incident of uh 18 i don't know uh, so he's been demoted after that incident and now he's just a regular soldier so he is trying to prove himself and and tells uh general Kutuzov that he is ready to uh, he's ready to prove himself and earn his way back up into his 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 staff commission and, um, as and now after Kutuzov acknowledges him, finally the old officers who he used to work with once again, start acknowledging him, which he does not really receive too kindly and declares to them that he will not be doing anything fun, essentially no drinking, no gambling until he's once again, an officer continuing on with the, uh, our cast of characters for now, we go over to the Pavlograd- uh, Pavlogradsky regiment, which is a Hussar regiment, um, Where we find our friend Nikolai. Uh, Nikolai is, you know, setting, he's gotten used to military life and is is having fun. Um, We, in this scene, encounter a small scene where a lieutenant steals money from uh, an officer that uh, Nikolai Rostov is staying with. He goes after the man and accuses the guy of being a thief in front of a bunch of other staff officers, which is an embarrassment for the regiment. So he gets put under a lot of stress and pressure to recant his ac- accusation
1: i mean it's true it's just embarrassing
0: yeah they yeah they're like look uh you just need to apologize so everyone knows we can maintain the regiment and you know as the text tells us you know these wise older men who had been in the regiment for so long or you know how to take care of the regiment which is of course to say sweeping things under the rug it's an important part of any military command i think
1: yeah absolutely
0: <laughs> so uh kutuzov is it receives the Austrian generals, and he's trying to convince them uh, that we know he, they're having this kind of verbal sparring game where they're really politely saying, hey, wouldn't it be better for you if this thing that I actually want you to do? And the other one says, no, no, it would be so much better for you if we did this thing that was better for me, <laughs> which continues. And Kutuzov even tries to trick the Austrian general by saying, look, you think we're in an unfavorable position, but your general Mac has just won the battle. And of course, It's only rumors to you, but I have a letter from General Mack confirming it, that he is, you know, on his way. At that point, Prince Andrei um, Balkansky goes out to find some other things. And while he's out and finds Yerkov and Novitsky in the hallway, uh, another Austrian general, unknown-looking wounded, joins them. They say, um, hey, you got to get out of here. Kutuzov is meeting with someone. And the guy says, no, I have to meet with him right now. And they're like, (laughs) I think it can wait, buddy. Who are you? And he says, I'm General Mack. We've been routed. And then they go and give Kutuzov some news. I don't imagine he loves getting in the middle of trying to trick some other generals. <laughs> in the days following this, the routing of General Mack's forces, things are not going well for the war effort on the side of the Austrians and, and, and now some Imperial Russian troops. Um, they're being pushed back at basically every junction and they are retreating and retreating. They're fighting in their back lines whenever they they get caught, essentially, when the French army catches up to them. Um, and this continues until... One day, they actually managed to score a victory. Shortly before we we follow that victory of the the Imperial Russian troops, we also follow a scene where they're retreating across some bridges, followed by the French army, uh, and we are treated to, uh, first, Novitskiy getting stuck on the bridge before being uh rescued by a a member of the of the hussars as they are trying to set fire to the bridge to prevent the the french from being able to cross and they are successful despite taking a couple losses uh nikolai for her part during the setting fire to the bridge panics a little bit and basically just kind of freezes up and spends most of the scene really neurotically. like everyone notices i'm a coward they all saw i wasn't doing anything you know not even paying attention to hey because they're being fired up by french cannons and some of them are being cut down don't walk down the middle of the bridge for even if you're not really a a military genius i think you can understand why you don't want to stand up not next to any walls when you're being shot up by cannons
1: yeah they wouldn't have been where i chose to stand
0: yeah yeah following that where in which they do manage to set the bridge on fire with fairly minimal losses let's go back forward to that victory and they say oh this is great this is amazing this is the first victory we've won <laughs> Andre, you need to go tell the the Austrian court, which is yeah, based in Brunn. don't know how you say that. So. <laughs> There's a little umlaut over the u. For I know that there we have some German speaking listeners out there. If you got that, please let us know how to say that uh, correctly because at this point Austria is is under threat and they so they've moved the 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 emperor, the other courtiers, the leadership of Austria to this uh, other town. Upon arrival, Andre is it should be noted while he is on his way there, he feels great. He is just achieving all of his dreams. It said, Prince Andre galloped along in a post-Britzka, experiencing the feelings of a man who has long been awaiting and f- has finally achieved the beginning of the happiness that he has desired. So he's feeling great. He's on cloud nine, which lasts until he actually gets to Brune and is finally admitted to see the Minister of War. And the minister says, uh, yeah, look, that's great. That's horrible that you lost General Schmidt. We all love General Schmidt. Uh, come back tomorrow. You can talk to the emperor and kind of sends him out. And now Andre's good mood is totally ruined by, all right, sure, just send me out. He's he's all over the place uh, with his with his feelings about the matter. And he goes to join the Russian ambassador in Brune uh, Belieben, who is noted is uh, I think quite funnily not interested in the question why, but rather in the question how generally, which is how he's managed to uh, advance so far. Has been a diplomat since he was just barely a teenager, uh, or at least been serving in a diplomatic capacity, having been all over the world. And he welcomes in Andre and, uh, you know, it says, look, don't take it too personally, but think about it. Austria is under threat. It may be taken at any time. A favorite general, General Schmidt, has been lost. Things are not going super well for them. They're retreating. This is not a really important victory. It's not something they're going to bring at all the stops and congratulate you on because, Great, the Imperial Russian Army is here, and they won one battle in their retreat. So yeah, they're not going to give you a medal. You know, just trying to be realistic about this. Also, they didn't capture any generals or anybody important in that battle either. It was just a battle which, as as the book notes, turned the morale of the troops around, which is great. But as of actual military significance, uh, as Billy Ben says, it's not, there's not much there. However, when when... Andre returns to the palace the next day. He actually gets quite the reception. There's there's a, a party. The emperor is there, although the emperor is quite awkward and just kind of asks <laughs> Andre a list of questions. <laughs> uh, and he even gets the sense that uh, the emperor spoke with such an expression as if his whole goal consisted in asking a certain number of questions. So he's just going through a lot of rote technicals. You know, how many people did you capture? What was the size of your forces? How far is that from here? <laughs> how long did it take? When did the battle start? So they actually give a fairly nice reception. He gets an award and, and well, actually, the whole regiment has given awards and he's kind of the one to take it to them. And things are going great um, until news comes that uh, the French are approaching Brun. Also, they've taken Vienna. Everyone's freaking out because how did they take Vienna that fast? And as we find out later, uh, it was through deception, the French part. Where they managed to kind of convince them to let some envoys through and, and basically a bridge that was supposed to be blown up to prevent them from being able to um you know if they took vienna approached Brune, uh, they were able to be um well they were well they were occupied with some peace talks french troops were able to remove the charges so now everyone's in, in a panic and they're getting ready to go and bill Eben is who is like saying hey I andre i think you're pretty cool if you go back to your troops you're probably going to die However, Andre says, look, my place is with the troops. So he sets out despite not knowing exactly where they are and travels generally in their direction before he's finally able to make his way back um, to Kutuzov's forces. And he goes and finds them in pretty, well, unfortunate circumstances. Once he arrives, um, he finds even, you know, people trying to retreat, (coughs) uh, military officers blocking people who have valid reasons for trying to retreat because they are trying to keep the soldiers from breaking, so like, you find a scene of a soldier trying to prevent a doctor from from going. Andre, uh, you know, uh, involves himself in and uh, you know, let makes the soldier go. And and everywhere you go, especially after he links up with Kutuzov and they go to see the forces, uh, it's just not going super hot for them. As the narrator says, on the roadsides, one constantly saw now dead horses, skinned or unskinned, now broken down wagons near which solitary soldiers sat waiting for something. And now soldiers who separated from their detachment and went into groups and went in groups to the neighboring village or came from the villages dragging chicken, sheep, hay or sacks filled with something. So the, the discipline is quickly falling apart. Um, Andre notes that this isn't really a group of soldiers, but rather a band of ruffians, more or less. Um, and, and Kutuzov basically says, well, look, we, we don't have a lot of good options available to us at this point. Even he descends, he deploys a, a regiment to go hold off the French. And he appears fairly emotional at this point. And once they leave, the commander leaves, uh, Kutuzov turns to Andre and says, if one tenth of that regiment comes back tomorrow, I will thank God. Which not what you love to hear from your commander who's just deployed some troops, um, especially if you're one of those troops. No, nope, not a great start. <laughs> no, no, you don't really love that expectation. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> that's exactly the opposite of uh, decimation. So I guess 10 times worse Ten times worse than decimation. Um, well, ten times worse minus one. Uh, <laughs> not a very good, not a very good uh, comparison. No, not a good outcome. Yeah, or a good outcome either too. Yeah. So, I, and looking at their options, they have a couple things they can do. They can stand and fight. They can retreat all the way back to Russia. They can try to link up with some other troops, although each comes with its own set of risks. And it ultimately, decides let's link up with other troops, which are you know closer to uh, the Russian Empire that we risk being routed. But, hey, it's the best chance we got, at least he thinks. And uh, he deploys a w- another regiment uh, led by, I assume, Bagration. Begr- and uh, and Andre demands to go with. Initially, it's not, it's not allowed because, more or less, Kutuzov kind of expects this rear guard to, well, not fare so well. It's really just there to buy time for the rest of the army. Although, for a while... The rear guard is actually able to hold off the French forces because the French forces, commanded by a general Murat, think that they can pull the same trick that they pulled on the Austrians. And you know Murat sees the the regiment and assumes that this must be all of Kutuzov's forces. This is will be so easy to destroy—just a couple thousand ragged men. And he's waiting on some troops and says, "Look, I can keep him here probably if I start tell them I'm starting a peace process, just you know like we did to get across uh, you know, that bridge outside of Vienna." And so he sends over the envoys and they start talking. And Bagration also sees and says, Oh, this is perfect. I can hold them off for a couple more days. That's exactly what we want. So Kutuzov's forces can get further. This kind of they, they mutual trickery continues until Napoleon, um, entering it <laughs> first for the first time as an actual character in the form of a letter, writes to Murat and totally chastises him and says, You know, who are you? You are not the commander of the French forces. You do not have the power to make truces. You as a general are there to command militarily. Um, and I will be, I, you know, I will be basically attending and finishing this problem up. Um, destroy the forces, right? End the peace process. Hi, buddy. For the, our audio listeners, my cat has decided to join. Um, he's, he's being affectionate this morning. So... The,
1: the cat's name is Napoleon. The cat joined as soon as he started talking about Napoleon. <laughs> he does have a
0: Napoleon complex. Um yeah. They yeah, tend to yeah so murad thoroughly chastised now says look I, I well also i don't i don't remember if napoleon says it but he does not trust murad anymore if he trusts any of his generals frankly and decides to go and finish it himself so murad who is not feeling great after that letter says i'm going to destroy them before napoleon gets here as, as a show that i can i can still lead at this time the imperial russian forces no idea They think the truth is still going on uh, our our friend prince um um, Andre arrives as per his request from Kutuzov and Bagration. He rides around the troops that take assessments. They're just waiting. Things are calm. Soldiers are eating food. Uh, even at one point, we in one regiment, which Dolokhovsky is serving in, they're within sight of the French forces and close enough that some of them are just kind of standing and staring at each other, looking at the weird foreign adversaries. And in fact, up on in one place, um, Dolokhov is arguing in French with a soldier. Um, and they are all all the other their fellows are with them, kind of watching them yell at each other until finally one of the imperial Russian soldiers starts speaking in gibberish French, which leads both sides to break out laughing. Um, and the narrator says it was such a laughter that it seems after this, they should have all unloaded their guns, put down their cannons uh, and gone back home. But of course, they didn't do that. Well, uh, Andre is just kind of surveying the troops and getting a sense and writing down notes and what he thinks they should do militarily. Um, they come under sudden fire at this point. Murat has decided, has gotten the letter, and decided, I just got to go. And the French forces just start advancing. And Andre rushes back to. Well, at this point, Andre is is speaking with Bagration, but the various officers are there. Officers who, moments before were sitting around drinking uh, or philosophizing. Run out. They get ready to fight. You know, you, the cannons get set up. Everyone is quickly getting ready to fight, but it's not a strong defensive line. And, and through the next section, we follow various. Uh, vignettes of of what how the battle goes. Really, for the most part, Andre following Bagration around and Bagration giving orders and mostly being told, in "General, we can't do that for this reason. Uh, we have to do this." And then Bagration going, "All right, sounds good." To which Andre notes that, um, well, Let me find the exact quote." In spite of the chance character of events and their independence of the commander's will, his presence accomplished a great deal, um, in that he seems to put everyone's minds at ease and they are already being forced into their what what their plans are, but somehow Bagration's presence and approving of what they're being forced to do seems to make them ready to do it, as if it was intentional. Um, they even managed to go down into the fight itself on the right flank where things are not going well. Uh, a regiment's been decimated by cavalry, and they managed to turn things around with not really so much their support, but their presence. Uh, when French forces arrive in the two lines, you know, really get into decide to do the classic for whatever reason, lining up, not for whatever reason, military tactics, lining up and shooting at each other. You know, Tolstoy even putting in a footnote that, you know, and at this point there is quite a heroic behavior of both sides as they looked nicely and stood in lines and began shooting at each other. Though well, the French don't shoot with discipline, um, which eventually the um with the support after, although the unit that they're with is almost destroyed, the support of a sudden unit emerging from the forest allows them to push forward and charge, and the right flank is saved. And now it's not so on the left flank in the forest where we find the Pavlo uh, hussars where Nikolai is serving, and they're, the two commanders there are not getting along. They're not talking about strategy, which makes it not ideal for a, a combat situation when you've got two different types of forces and they won't support each other. And so the troops are just in the forest, they're just fighting for their lives against the French troopers, including Nikolai, who um, gets shot off his horse. Well, his horse gets shot and he has to run, assuming he's dead. And as he's running, he's not even really paying attention to the battle. He's just looking at the world around him before finally he comes to some French troops. And, you know, they say, you know, like, OK, well, you're a prisoner now. And in a moment of bravery, Nikolai pulls out his gun uh, and then he throws it at the soldier <laughs> and then he bolts. <laughs> well, let me find the exact line. Um, it was just so perfectly phrased. He seized his pistol and instead of firing it, <laughs> threw it at the Frenchman and ran for the bushes as fast as he could. And he, he's almost—he's freaking out about his arm, which isn't working right, and he's just not—he's not loving things, and is almost caught, but he manages to make it away. And with the uh, the advance or with the arrival of some other troops by Tomoha and regiment, they're able to turn the battle around eventually, but not after you know after taking heavy losses, really. But still, for you know, for the time being, they they forge Murat's forces back. and after that, they say, all right, it's time to go. Um, the cannoneers, the artillerymen, it's noted I should say, they've been firing this whole time. they're having a great they're cheerful. They've lost they lost two thirds of their men in this out of 40 men. Um, it said that at least when Andre arrives to relieve them, you know, seventeen of them are dead of the 40, almost half, but later on it said two thirds of them died uh, in the in the retreat eventually. Unlike everyone else who got orders to retreat, no one told them. And in fact, people's supposed to defend them just kind of left them. So they've been, they've been, frankly, were, as they know, later on in an after-action conversation with Andre, probably the reason that the Imperial Russian forces were able to win, because they the whole time just kept firing their cannons, despite having no cover, despite being cut down by French cannons and French shot. And uh, I should point out the, the leader, Tushin, the Anna officer, it, we follow his story for a while, and he... Sort of is a bit more philosophical, as we find before the battle and during the battle. As he stands in the cannons, he has this great sense of imagination about how the fight is going, and it's all quite heroic and doesn't entirely match up to reality. But you know, say, Um and you know they they fall back, and hey, it's it's enough of a victory for them um, individually. Their forces are torn up. The cannoneers take in, they find young Nikolai Rostov, who's just wandering around, his arm hanging limply, bloody, shell-shocked, um, and, and take him with him and kind of take care of him. And the rest of this part is, for the most part, just them in retreat and uh, the experience of you know the various soldiers and uh, the states they're in and the things they're taking are just leaving behind. And they're retreating, but it's not the worst outcome. And that's where we finish part two through of, of our great big warfare part the first warfare part with the introduction of Napoleon, which is exciting it's a good outcome i think i would say for them yeah for the surviving ones that as good as they could have expected
1: yeah i mean they're able to hold off the french for a little bit and then kind of uh link up with the rest of the troops and it's kind of it's okay it could have been uh completely everybody dead
0: so big ups think about it yeah oh i should also mention uh in the, on the right flank dalachav forgot to bring him back in He's, he's thirsty to get back his his um, officer status when they when they they charge in to save the unit that's that's deteriorated they Dallahouf is running across he's he's no, he even chases in, he's chasing an officer he captures him he takes his sword when uh, I think it's Andre another officer sees him sees him later he says look I've been busy essentially holding a French sword he's wearing some uh, you know some elements of a French uniform so he's he's out there taking trophies capturing officers showing off about it yeah well i i get it i mean if you had you know a bear incident whatever that means to you if you just had a bear incident and you know two of your three friends left that bear incident either a diplomat or incredibly rich and then you got busted back down to private i can see why you might have a little chip off your shoulder yeah. and want to get back up yeah that would be that would be <laughs> tough yeah so oh it's been 200 pages this is uh so much happens so many characters to follow oh i i, I didn't so there's i oh, didn't yeah. even mention zherkov at the beginning Novitsky and zherkov zherkov is a funny character he's just he's everywhere zherkov after after you first meet him he gets busted down he, he gets sent back down from the general staff into general officers and then every time you meet him he's now working for a new officer for whatever reason <laughs> yeah there's there's a few
1: of those uh
0: so how do you walk away from part two
1: Part two. I have questions about part two that I will pose because there's a few kind of threads that run between the war parts and the peace parts. And so one of the clearest questions I think that anybody will have when they read War and Peace is why does Tolstoy divide at least these first two books or rather the first two parts of book one into peace to start and then war to continue. Why doesn't he just combine them into some sort of, I I don't know, why doesn't he write it differently? Is it just the sequencing of the action? I, I don't think that's an adequate explanation because you could tell things through flashback or there's other ways that you can get around the literal sequencing of action. And so I think he's trying to say a little bit more about the divide between war and peace, which we will talk about a little bit as we analyze some of these key passages that I've marked for us. And the other side of that is what are the similarities between war and peace and what are the similarities between society and battle? If you take a look at the opening scene of Anna Pavlovna's party, I think you will see that there are actually more than expected, a more than expected number of comparisons that you can draw between some of these characters who would say condescending things to their wives or the other women at the parties. And then kind of go do their own version of those exact things in battle. So I think it's pretty funny, and I think these are important things to look out for.
0: Right, and we also see, following that line of thought, not only reflections of the behaviors of men in society and men in battle. We also see the same some of the same characters going from society to battle. Um, you know, obviously, double, right. well, the most important two, are, of course, are Nikolai and Andre, but also Belikov. Um, as well as a couple other characters who, whose names escape me at the moment.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think one the so I think one example of the sort of rules of the military and the rules of society, maybe that you could point out is just this opening scene where Kutuzov is coming to inspect the troops, and they basically spend all night. Uh, focusing on how they look, how they're dressed, how they're presented, only to at the last (laughs) minute decide, never mind, we need to change it all back and look bad just to show that we were, you know, marching far and long and whatnot. And so there's this sort of ordered confusion in a lot of ways of military life and of regiment life. And you can see that clearly when they're discussing the army and its uniforms. And as the inspection goes on, there are just these very minor things that will kind of set somebody over the edge when they're inspecting it, like buttons not being polished or the sword not being adjusted exactly right. And these are kind of in similar veins. You can kind of see some of this in society as well. A lot of what is deemed important is it's just constructed really. And the rules of warfare and the rules of society are just constructs they're really not necessarily meaningful on their own but they're things that constrict us and they might motivate people to act certain ways and do certain things for
0: instance i think the parallel here to your point is strengthened by looking at it just from a societal perspective um you might look at it either as someone from that society is looking back on it and they talk about all the particulars and you're like well yeah of course that's how it is but now recontextualized into warfare where they're like you know you might say why are we going into parade parade or parade you know marching gear putting all those nice things and to your point about like it, it's just there's it's just because of the expectation slightly recontextualizing it shows you know brings out it's a lot of the, the army stuff is ridiculous it's funny um and that that ridiculousness of it highlights to your point its counterparts in society uh, in a way that and recontextualizing it makes brings those questions and makes it funny and makes it ridiculous in a way that it doesn't in its quote-unquote natural environment
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the ways that you can see this again is through Dalahov because like you mentioned, he is the one that gets kind of the brunt of the bear incidents punishments, basically by being demoted to private. And there's a moment during the inspection when Dalhov is looking at the commander-in-chief and the narrator writes that Dalhav's clear blue eyes gaze at the commander-in-chief as boldly as they had gazed at the regimental commander their expressions seem to tear aside the veil of convention that placed so great a distance between a commander-in-chief and a private. And so Tolstoy, of course, is aware of the fact that the military is kind of ridiculous in its conventions and whatnot. Having served in the military himself, he is quite aware of this, and he's quite aware of how battle works and how the conventions of warfare are supposed to be used and fought and whatnot. And so the fact that the convention of rank can be destroyed just by the way somebody looks at another person is fascinating, I think. And it also points to the fact that in war, not so much in society, but war specifically has this tendency to shake up existing social orders because you're just getting so many people together in such a chaotic situation that there are moments that cannot happen anywhere else, perhaps. And we'll see some of these as we go Later on, but I think just now I wanted to make a note of that as well as a note of the way that eyes in Tolstoy's writing can be used to convey ethical meaning throughout the novel. That's something that is used a lot in Anna Karenina, but it's also used in War and Peace. So if you see eyes mentioned, you might want to make a note of it. It's probably important.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, kind of moving from there, I also want to talk specifically about Andre. Andre is our most consistent sure. character uh, accompaniment. And of course, now we are contextualizing Andre from his rather unhappy life in uh, Petersburg and Moscow society to him being out in the battlefield, and for the most part, being just like ready. He loves it. He's happy. At least feels that he's happy and feels fulfilled in the way that he doesn't elsewhere. Being you know an adjutant to uh, Kutuzov and just running around, bringing around notes, wanting to get into battle himself, um, and it's. Right. I mean, with the sole exception of, you know, a couple instances um, when he early on snaps at Jerichoff, when he's his mood suddenly squashed by his reception in Brun. So uh, it's, you know, not it's it's, you know, happy when he's uh, moving away from the particulars of life and, and just getting into all right, combat. I can do that. But getting back into people having fun, the intricacies of core life, it's uneven again.
1: I think that he's really a a positive character, because he's one of the few people that's able to maintain their cool in battle. And he does a lot of positive things for his regiment. You you mentioned at the end when he goes down to help the artillerymen at their cannons, and he's helping them haul them away so they don't get captured by the French. And this is something that is kind of criticized later when they're having their little debrief because they didn't disable all the cannons or they weren't able to get them all away. But what has failed to be mentioned in this debrief is the fact that most of the people had died and Andre was really just kind of slugging it out. And the outcome was a lot better than it would have been had he not been there. And his foil is, of course, Nikolai, as you mentioned, who is Basically a coward in every instance that you could imagine in war. And that to me is relatable because I think if I was <laughs> in the military, I would also be a coward or a deserter uh, because I don't see myself being very good in the military. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, I think maybe you can also kind of draw attention to. So in your example, when the, the commander Tushin of the artillery is being criticized, they say... Kutuzov is telling him, you know, why, did you, why didn't you why did you take the second cannon? All right, one's gone, fine. But the second one, you should have had time to take that. But what about your covering, uh, the, the the men who are supposed to cover you? And Tushin doesn't want to tell the commander because he doesn't, he's got this romantic sense. He doesn't want to, he hates being criticized. And he doesn't want to throw other regiments under the bus. We so doesn't want to tell him, no, we were uh, abandoned by the people who were supposed to protect us. It was just us. That's why we're dying so many. And he just stands there in silence for a whole minute. It's very awkward. And then Andre leans in and says, but, "You know, of course, Your Excellency, I was there. There were no men to cover them. Two thirds of them were dead. Two thirds of their horses were dead. You know, Tushin did admirably under these circumstances, and arguably it's up to him that we carried the battle. So not only does he pull him out, but he recontextualizes him for Kutuzov as as a hero. I think you can roughly look at that versus Nikolai's experience with sort of fighting the Man, which goes a little bit differently because, well, we see." Andre sort of subverting hierarchy through, I guess you can call it, you know, uh, attracting flies through honey, he's working the, the system to achieve his outcomes. Nikolai sees the theft and wants to get the money back for his friend. And he goes to the staff officers and not staff, just the officers mess hall and accuses the guy in front of everyone. You know, you stole the wallet, you know, you should give it back. And in the end, once the guy gives him the money back, he kind of is disgusted and even throws it back at the guy, which is not, I, I, <laughs> I mean, at that point you've got the money back, just keep it. But, and then, right, you know, he's pressured right. and apologizing. So in, in their own ways, they try to stand up to injustices they see and Nikolai's is, passionate but ineffectual and to your point shows you uh, like how they're both adjusting to these circumstances
1: yeah i also wanted to make a quick note that i and i don't know how this is translated in in every edition however nikolai uses the term to give satisfaction he says essentially when he's talking about this other officer who's he has upset he uses this phrase and what he means is to duel which was not legal at this time which is why a character would probably use a more indirect way of talking about dueling i i don't know if it's translated as dueling in any other books or copies to be clear however wanted to make a note of that in case anybody got confused okay so we can talk a little bit more about warfare Let's do it warfare like battle specifically and planning, perhaps, because that is kind of the key gist of this part of book one. And one of the funniest parts, I think, was this bridge scene where they've gotten everything on the bridge, but they almost don't light the bridge and blow it up because nobody told them that they were going to have to blow it up. They only received orders to rig the bridge and uh, the character says, uh, about the combustible material, you spoke to me, but about firing the bridge, you said nothing. (laughs) And the reply is rightfully so. Why would we be rigging the bridge if we didn't mean to explode it? But they almost don't get it off in time. The French are almost able to come over the bridge because of the fact that they had no plan to actually set the
0: bridge on fire and blow it up, which is kind of hilarious. And it takes two officers to convince the... You know the commander of the hussar regiment to do it. The first one, he's arguing with them. The second one comes in. Uh, yeah, the second one comes in and tells him, and the you know, the guy says, "Fine, I'll set it. Uh, I'll set it on fire," and acting as if he's the one being um, put as subject to unjust conditions.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's just a lot of miscommunication, I think, kind of across the board, and that's what makes it. That's where the comedy of the military really lies is in this deep fundamental misunderstanding of each other that comes out many many different Mm -hmm. times
0: later on you see the whole left flank and the final battle of this part almost completely dissolved because the two commanders just can't agree one's a mounted regiment as i recall the other is an infantry regiment and so they're they're trying to they have different how they they have differences in how they want to approach fighting in the woods not working for Mm -hmm. either of them refusing to work out they even instead of commanding their troops right up to the front and have a pissing contest as they stand in front of gunfire
1: <laughs> yeah yeah there's also this kind of aerial view of the war that comes out at one point where the french are convinced that the center of the action and the center of the russian troops is at this one point kind of at the battlefield when it's really just kind of four isolated cannons that are firing grape shots randomly and maybe killing people, maybe not. But the French are really convinced that that's where the center of the action is. And so this kind of gets to the earlier point that we were discussing when André is talking with Bolivin and he is criticizing André for not capturing a general during the battle, which he's claiming is a success, but which... Uh, Believing is pushing back on him saying, no, you didn't, you didn't capture anybody. So how could it be a success? And then Andre responds to him and says, not everything happens as one expects or with the orderliness of a parade. We had expected, as I told you, to attack their rear by seven o'clock in the morning, but we still hadn't gotten there by five in the afternoon. And so this, of course, is just the beginning of everything kind of not necessarily going wrong because it was a military victory, but it's going wrong in terms of the plan And we don't have a Tolstoy monologue here yet, but we're going to get many, 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 many more examples of this where Tolstoy is going to also explain to us how every great military commander really just kind of got lucky because their plans never really worked as they were supposed to. So what ended up happening was more or less just luck. And that's basically what happens here. There's a series of coincidences and kind of just random chance-based incidents that make it so the Russians are able to hold off the French and kind of regroup. And this chapter sort of ends in this sort of, I think it's a little bit of a maybe cheeky way where the last sentence is, next day the French did not renew their attack and the next day the French did not renew their attack and the remnant of Bagration's detachment was reunited with Kutuzov's army. And so, it's just this very, not not much with it. Like, if this was in a history book, for instance, this would not be an important battle. However, if this entire sort of detachment was wiped out, that really, I think, would have been catastrophic. There's a lot of important people attached to it. And not to mention for Tolstoy's novel, that would have been not great (laughs) either.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, To, you know, your point about the chance... Of course, um, Bagration barely gives any orders. He just accepts what's happening and says, very good, and lets things go on their way. You know, and the French lose the battle, as if we're to believe André, who says, look, it was really the, the cannons that held it for us. The only reason the French didn't t- overtake the cannons, which they very easily could have, is because, like you said, they assumed it was the point of the battle. And they assumed, well, if that's, if that's what's holding us all back, they must be defending it, like tooth and nail, right? No. The Russians, they gave up. A long time ago actually total luck
1: <laughs> it's just four lads firing at will just kind of randomly yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. one of them their officers yeah. barely even paying attention he's just imagining heroic victories in the future and has to be shaken out of it <laughs> and by andre telling him you need to go <laughs> you're almost all dead <laughs> so i think prince andre is a pretty
1: funny character i said that he's kind of a sort of role model military figure he's able to keep his cool under battle which is not something that Nikolai is able to do even close however there was that scene that you mentioned where the doctor and wife or the doctor's wife was trying to get through the road and it was blocked by all of the transports and everything and Prince Andre is yelling at the Officers saying to let them pass, and he does, and they do, and everything is great, and the woman thinks he's her hero. However, Prince Andre says that, or the narrator rather, says that Prince Andre has exposed him to what he dreaded more than anything in the world, ridicule. Which is a really funny line to put in a part that is exclusively about being under heavy cannon fire and gunfire he doesn't fear that but what he fears is, is being ridiculed right. which it, it kind of points back of course to the differences between society and the military and it points back to the party because these are kind of things that's are associated with society life, rumors, ridicule, dress, these are all things that play prominent and important parts of the war chapter as well. And so you get these kind of similarities that run through the two. Even though we would perceive war and peace as two totally separate things that are not really related other than the fact that they maybe both have people involved to some degree in them. Tolstoy shows us that there really are some major connecting threads that run through both of them. The people, really, and the personalities are what make them move. And the sort of chance, if you will, are also... Chance, if you will, is also a really major mechanism for moving these things. And moving these events kind of forward, They're, it's not necessarily a, a forward movement, but it is a movement of some sort, and we can talk about that more later too. All right. Do you have a lot? Do you have a lot um, more? I just wanted this There's, wasn't a
0: specific. I don't know if this is a broader point, but I was kind of interested um, in paying attention to how armies are portrayed, especially after Stalingrad, of like the kind of ferocity of the Red Army, and it's, I would, it's interesting. Not interesting. I don't have that much to say about it, but just tracking the thread of how the soul army is portrayed.
1: In what sense?
0: That's why I don't think it's a terrible interesting point. I'm just Tolstoy giving them the character, uneven character, and some points being like, well, they'd set up heroically, but often otherwise being like, now nah, these are ruffians uh, stealing stuff. I think, there's
1: a, uh, I think there's a major motivation of the army in War and Peace to get military awards, which is not really present in Stalingrad. There's a much different sense of war, I think. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't listened to our Stalingrad series, you totally should, if you're interested in, you know, history, literature, etc. Wonderful series. But there's this sort of sense in Stalingrad that if they don't fight, there really is going to be nothing left. However, in War and Peace, there is a note saying, or there is a... Passes where the narrator notes that, well, they didn't go back for their wounded because the general just left a note and kind of entrusted them to the humaneness and fair treatment of the French. Which, of course, I think generally there are... there. Well, actually, I don't know this. So <laughs> Tolstoy will write parts later, of course, where there are Russians who are treated fine by Napoleon and whatnot. And it's just the it's a different sort of enemy. It really is just kind of like in aristocrats game mm-hmm. more or less and stalingrad these people are really fighting for something and here I, I don't get that sense of purpose really at least not yet maybe people will develop it later
0: we'll see well you know to um kutuzov when he deploys that regiment basically die before the final battle and says if one tenth of them come back i'll be happy mm-hmm. it's a tactical calculation it's you see it's The officers broadly are, are, you know, I mean, not the soldiers aren't getting that, but just officers way of looking at things. You've got the officers who are important, more or less, and then you get your soldiers who are your currency.
1: Yeah, it's it's different when you have so many people that this is their career and they're just kind of careerists and they're not really in the midst of the battle. They're more or less safe. At least a lot of these officers are kind of, they're back, they're running messages. Not everybody is on the front line. Whereas I think in Stalingrad, you do have this impending sense of doom where everything is becoming a yeah. lion, line and that's a much different sense of urgency and motivation that yeah. you have. So, it's interesting to track for sure.
0: Uh, that's about all I had.
1: Yeah, I have more, but I'm going to save it for our Patreon-only book club nice. because otherwise we're going to take too long and this episode is never going to get edited. <laughs> uh classic classic but uh before we totally wrap up cameron i Mm. gotta ask you on a scale of one to whoever you choose how buzzed up on caffeine (laughs) are you how alert do you feel
0: uh i've only had one cup of coffee so it hasn't hit yet usually i try to shoot for two or three before i start getting the peak of just feeling awake and you just re-up through the day just feeling yeah how about you how is your Mm -hmm. do you feel stronger you feel ready to like?
1: Uh, I feel my digestive tract kicking into overdrive <laughs> with everything in my kefir, so I am ready to go. I see why this was the diet. Sure. If I ever get sick again, I will move exclusively to kefir and or kumis. Let me know if anyone's tried that in the comments. I really hope you haven't. <laughs> probably isn't. Probably isn't great, but I, I don't know for sure. <laughs> Not that kind of doctor.
0: Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly transition what we have on our script here. Uh, I'm not gonna ask you what we have next episode because I think our audience is smart enough to figure it out. Next time we're reading part three of book one of War and Peace, so follow along from from here. About another hundred pages if you are, are are reading with us,
1: and you should be reading with us. And if you are reading with us, also click the link in our bio and in our show notes to join our Discord. We've got a War and Peace channel there where you can talk to all of the other Tolstoy lovers and Tolstoy readers that are going to be reading along with us. We've got a really good group. So I'm excited to continue on with this.
0: Before we let you go, we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Pacrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Julie, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Stoner Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, almost made it through in one breath, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, and madeline and jeff upon further reflection no i wasn't almost through it in one breath Uh, but podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running take a look at our patreon on patreon.com tipsy tolstoy the music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to join us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Podcast, on Twitter at tipsytolstoy, or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com.
1: You'll hear from us again soon.